Uh, amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Austin Snively. I'm the director of student ministries here at Redeemer. Uh, so you all have the third string guy up here with you this morning. But um, excited to be up here nonetheless. Grateful for the opportunity uh, to be wrapping up this, this series called Grace. And Jonathan's already gotten on to one person this morning for drinking too much coffee. I'm very affected by caffeine, and I have, I've had like three cups. So if I start talking fast or get a little jittery or get excited, that's probably what you can blame it on. Uh, but as he just mentioned, we've been going through this series, Grace, and what we've been looking at is what does it mean to be a people of grace? What does it produce in us to have received this extravagant grace from God and Jesus Christ, and how does it affect us? And that's who we want to be as Christians. John tells us in chapter 1 of, of his gospel, we receive grace upon grace from God to save us from our sins. And so over the last two weeks, we've looked at two particular distinctives, gratitude and forgiveness. And this week, as we wrap this series up, we're going to come to a story Jesus tells about two men, one who lives a graceless life and one who lives a grace-filled life. And really this story, what it does more than a particular distinctive uh, that we've been looking at, it more shows a, a personified grace in these two guys. And so... We want to be a people who know gospel doctrine. That's what we've been looking at, grace for the undeserving, but we also want to be a people who use that doctrine. We want to be people that live it out, people that live in a grace-filled community. So we're going to read from Luke 18 this morning, just one chapter over from where we've been, and uh, it should be on the screen behind me. At the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and Joe will pop something up there for all y'all to say back to. Uh, that's kind of new, so just want to throw that out there as a reminder. Uh, but here from Luke chapter 18 this morning. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, oh yeah, it's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pat had to remind me that we st uh, have started doing that right afterwards. That's great. Uh, anyways, so we read that and we see that there's two men and they have the same problem. And they try and solve it in two radically different ways. One's very wrong and, and one is, is the right way. And we can see it in the outline there. Uh, everyone has a problem, the solution of ourself and the solution of grace. So first, what is, what is every man's problem? And really, the, the problem we're faced with here is the problem of righteousness. We're solving this problem of being separated from God. And that is what everybody in this room and everybody in the history of the world has had to try and figure out how to reconcile, how to deal with. Both of these men come up to the temple, the same temple, uh, which is their equivalent of going to church, praying to the same God, and trying to solve the same problem. They really mirror each other in some ways, but we'll see that they're really very different people. But one thing they have in common is they know that man is separated from God, and the only way to get back to him is to be declared right, be declared righteous. And uh, just taking a second to think about what that word means, it's, it's weird for our culture to talk about righteousness. Biblical moral code is kind of on the way out in our culture. 
uh, often even declared as unrighteous. But it doesn't change the fact that we're all searching for some form of righteousness, a Christian or not, because really what, those, what that question of righteousness is is a question of approval and acceptance. And those two words, they should strike a chord with everybody because everyone is searching for those two things and they fall under this umbrella of righteousness. Where do you find approval and where do you find acceptance? Because all righteousness really is is a legal term, meaning to be declared right. It's a standing in the eyes of the law where you are free of other people's judgment because you've been declared approved of, declared as part of the group. And so the question becomes, where do you get that verdict? Because everybody's trying to find it. We can see it in our culture all over the place, uh, things like virtue signaling. We, uh, we cater to beliefs we don't actually believe, just so somebody else will say, oh yeah, that person's good, I like them, they're in. Or we post manicured versions of our lives on social media so others look at us and say, oh, that's the life that I want. They, they're pretty cool, I like that, I approve of them. Even our political system, we, we operate in this two-party system that can create echo chambers where we never have to hear that we're wrong. We always hear that we're in, we always hear that we're right. And that's a way of searching for this approval. So there's a million ways we do it, but it just might not always look like the law of the Bible. And the question is, why do we care so much? Why do we care about social media? Why are we always anxious about friendships and other relationships? Why do we care if we have the approval of our, of our boss or if we're seen as good parents? And it really boils down to we're designed for this external affirmation of righteousness. You're never going to find it in yourself. You need somebody else to come along and say, good job. We're all looking for the attaboy. And uh, Danette Carnes, she's a teacher here in, in town in her classroom. Um, my mom goes and helps kids that have a hard time reading sometimes. And uh, they have a list. They go through the words. If you get through a column of words, then you get a sticker. And so my mom's helping this little boy go through his columns of words. He gets through the first one. Oh, great job. And he, he just smiles. He lights up. They get through the second one. Man, you're doing amazing. This is great. His smile gets even bigger. He gets a sticker. He gets to go put it up on the wall. And they get through the third column, and he starts to struggle, and they kind of figure out where he's at. And so they made some flashcards, and she says, all right, you work on these, and we'll come back, and we'll, we'll try and go through this list again. And as she's leaving, he comes up and grabs her and says, was I amazing? Did I do amazing? And that's it. That's what we're all looking for. We want somebody to tell us that, right? And that's the problem of righteousness. But the issue is we're made to hear it from God, and as great as my mom is, I love her. Hearing it from her is never going to be enough to ever satisfy your heart or anybody else. God alone can give you that approval. And when you seek it elsewhere, you separate yourself from the only one who can actually ever give you righteousness. You were created for, you were designed for approval and acceptance that comes from his smile, the smile of a father, your true father, shining down on you. That's what we say in the benediction every week, right? May his face shine upon you. Know that you have his acceptance and his approval. So how do we get it? That's what we're searching for, but how do we get it? And this is where we meet our two characters. They're searching for that righteousness and that approval. And one's going to try and find it in himself. The Pharisee, you can see it there in verse 9. He's a stand-in for the people that Jesus is speaking to. Those who trusted in themselves for righteousness and treated others with contempt. What Jesus is doing here is, is brilliant. Self-righteous people, we're really bad at looking at our own sin and really good at seeing other, other, other people's sin, right? So what Jesus does is he takes them out of the equation. He doesn't call them out on their sin directly because they would justify and say, well, I'm not that guy. 
But when he takes them out of the story and gives them somebody else to judge and they can see the nastiness and effect of their own sin, it really put, disarms them and gives them an opportunity to see how dangerous their sin is. And when you read the story, it becomes clear this guy, he's really good at building a record for himself. He's really good at finding righteousness outside of God, outside of grace. He believes that if he acts right, then maybe he'll actually be made righteous. And we can all sense this problem that he does. We need to be declared righteous by somebody else. But as Tim Keller put it uh, in his book, Prodigal God, or, yeah, Prodigal God, he decides that sin is something outside of himself, not something that could ever come from his heart. He's convinced himself if he keeps the bad out there away from him, he can actually make himself righteous, and God will give him that stamp of approval. So he makes sure everybody else knows it too. And you can see it in his posture and in his prayer. Right? His posture, he stands far away from everybody else. Why does he do that? Because he thinks he's better than them. They're the other people. And then he's the righteous person. But you can also see it in his prayer that really isn't a prayer at all. It's just blatant self-promotion. He stands there and says, man, God, thank you for all the good stuff I do. I mean, how dumb is that? How bad? It's incredible. Uh, but it's no prayer at all. An author I read this week says he glances at God before he compliments himself. It's this cover-up for his own self-righteousness, his own record-building. But not only that, he brags about the rules that he keeps, but not just God's rules, his own rules. And there's something else that self-righteousness produces in us. He goes above and beyond the requirements of the law. He, first, he says, well, I, look, I'm not that guy. Thanks for that. Second, I even have more rules than the law. If anybody deserves to get to heaven, if anybody's good, it's me. And that's really what he's doing. He fasts more than the law requires, he tithes more than the law requires, and he wants to make sure everybody hears it. You see, self-righteousness, it causes you to build this list of rules that others have to live by too, or else all of a sudden they become separated and you get, they get treated with contempt because they can't just do what you do. They can't live right. Why can't they do that? It doesn't make sense to us. What it really is, at the, at the end of the day, is just taking other people's sins way more seriously than your own. And that is a dangerous thing to do. And I, as I'm guilty of reading this passage and going, God, thank God I'm not a Pharisee. <laughs> it's a little ironic, I know. But it really can be sneaky, this self-righteousness, because how often do you hear something along those lines in a testimony? Oh, I would be just like those terrible people over there, but... And there, there's some goodness to that, right? We want to celebrate transformation and God bringing people out of darkness, into light, out of sin, into life. But we also have to think about if your prayer is more about you and what you've done or not done than God and what he's done, you might not really be praying. You might just be worshiping yourself and disguising it behind religion. That's what this sin of self-righteousness does. It warps our view of the world to make us the center of the universe. The other thing that it produces is insecurity, and that's why he's so loud about it. He needs the external stamp of approval, so he has to let everybody know exactly what it is he's doing. His bragging shows that he's unsure of his status. Underneath that facade of righteousness, it's really just that addiction to self. He's bragging because he doesn't know he has approval. 
just like that little boy in Danette's classroom needed to know that he was approved of by somebody outside of himself, so does this Pharisee and so do all of us. What he's really trying to do is manipulate God, and that sounds like a, a strong claim, but really he's living in a way that says, if I live a good life, God owes me something good. Fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. It could be he owes me heaven, he owes me health, he owes me wealth, he owes me a family, he, whatever it is. We think if we live in a way that builds our righteousness, God will look at us and say, okay, yeah, I'll give you something good. And that is not the gospel at all. That is not grace at all. And we know from Isaiah 64 that those works are nothing but filthy rags. And this, this is what we do, though. We're record builders. We're just like this Pharisee. Whether or not you grew up in church and have been what we typically think of as a self-righteous person or not, we're record builders holding up this flashing neon sign pointing at me saying, approve of me. Look at me. But if you're, if you're still questioning if you ever deal with self-righteousness or if you're a self-righteous person, just think about these questions. Have you ever looked at somebody else and been disgusted by their sin while you justify your own and don't take it seriously? Or do you look at people like the Pharisee and say, thank God I'm not the Pharisee like I do? <laughs> both are self-righteousness. And both of them are, are taking us out of salvation by grace. Your metric just changes. You can be self-righteous about self-righteous people or you can be self-righteous about do-batters is kind of what the tax collector is, right? He sins big. Everybody knows it. But whatever your metric is underneath it all is believing that your set of rules is the only way for the world to operate and you're owed something for them. Uh, there's this TV show, The Good Place, and it sums up our cultural attitude towards this really well, I think. The, these characters in the show, I'm also going to ruin the premise of the show, so I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, but... Uh, these characters in the show, they, they live a life thinking that if they do more good than bad, if they live up to this ideal, then God owes them the good place. He owes them heaven. But what happens is, is they die and they, they go to the good place and discover that the ideal is impossible to live up to. The, the system takes into account unintended consequences of your actions, how it affects other people, and even your motivations behind the action. And as, as a result, the bad side of the scale is always heavier than the good side of the scale. And I was watching the show, and I was like, that's it. That's how we operate. We think we're owed something, and we can't possibly get it on our own. And they and we have misunderstood our relationship to God when we operate like that. Living with right action, with no care for the heart, it's not grounds for salvation at all. It's the wrong path. You're not going to get anywhere you want to go. And the Pharisee really shows us that good people don't go to heaven. And that's good news for us, because there are no good people, y'all. Essentially, it shows us there's two ways of rejecting God, doing good from the flesh or doing bad from the flesh. Either way, it's not from the Spirit. And if it's not from the Spirit, then it's not getting us where we need to go. Both are doing something to escape God as their master and as their savior. You're either fleeing from him in open rebellion, or you're rebelling against him by trying to outdo him in goodness. And good luck with that. John Bunyan said this about the Pharisee. He said, his whole righteousness was sinful. And I just loved that line. It was great. Uh, and then he went on to say, we must be made righteous before we can do righteousness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have to be made righteous by somebody else, by grace, before your good works ever are good? Your good works are just as much a barrier of entry to heaven as your bad ones. 
Uh, and growing up in Polk County in Winter Haven, plenty of us are familiar with orange groves, even if they're you know, kind of going away in place of houses these days. But if you walk into any orange grove in Polk County, you can see that image starting to come clear. We have this issue called greening, and what it does is a, there's a small insect that bites the leaf and it affects the tree, but it's a slow death for the tree. So you can walk into the orange grove and see there's some trees that are clearly dying. They're yellowish, kind of look sick, don't have fruit, don't have a ton of leaves. They clearly need help. That, that's the do-batter. They know their need of grace, right? Nobody's going to question that. But then there's also these other trees that when you walk in, they put on this appearance of health. They may not have all the symptoms of the disease yet, but then you go and pick the fruit and you cut it open and it's no good. It's dry, it's malformed, it's misshapen, and that's the Pharisee. The appearance of fruit doesn't actually mean there's always good fruit. And that's what self-righteousness does. It sneaks under, under, in under this false pretense of being a good person, what it, whoever that is. And it makes you produce bad fruit of pride and boasting and selfishness and contempt. And good luck finding those on a list of the fruit of the Spirit anywhere, in any church you ever go to. They're not there. And those things will kill you if they go unchecked. See, the, the do-badder and the do-gooder, they have the same problem. It's avoiding God as Savior. The difference is the do-gooder doesn't know it yet. So then what is the answer? If it's not ourselves, if it's not our own record building, then we have to be made righteous by another record. And that's grace, and that's what we've been talking about. And this is the solution the tax collector moves towards. He looks at, to the record of another to ensure his rightness before God. And what's striking about the story is the tax collector, he performs the same exact actions in the same places, praying to the same God. But his posture is so different, and that is what makes him justified, what makes him righteous. He goes to God, and rather than saying, me, 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 I don't know if y'all ever listen to country music, but Toby Keith had a song, I want to talk about me, and that's all I can think of when I, when I hear his prayer. But the tax collector instead, he goes to God on the basis of God's action, not his own. God have mercy. That's where he starts, and that's where we have to start too. He prays God would save him, and he can be sure of it because he's there at the temple where they would sacrifice a lamb for the sins of the people every day. And he's trusting in that sacrifice to cover his record. So where these two mirror each other in action, they're really opposite in heart. But it's important to recognize this too. You can read it and think, oh, now I'm supposed to just hate myself and think I'm this terrible sinful person all the time but no that's not a, that's not at all the heart of the tax collector what it is is a man who's come to the end of himself he's realized his record will never ever account for enough for righteousness before God and it does produce true humility in him because he's recognized the weight of his sin and the weight of his need and he turns to God and just cries out and rests in his goodness and that allows him, that grace, it allows him to approach God with a humble boldness the Pharisee can. It produces true humility where he is sure of his value and God's love for him, but also sure of his desperate need. And that is part of being a people of grace. He really exemplifies this quote from Jack Miller, who had a profound influence on this church and a lot of others in our, in our network. Uh, he says, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. And that's the tax collector's approach. He doesn't need the Pharisee's approval, which is why they're, I mean, if somebody else was praying and said, thank God I'm not like Austin, I'd be pretty offended. But he just kind of overlooks it and goes back to God and leans into the mercy and grace of God. 
He doesn't need his approval. He already has the approval and smile of God on him because of another's record. Because his sin was put on somebody else, it was paid by somebody else, he knows our God is a God of grace. So where the Pharisee stands far off in superiority and prays, look at my goodness, the tax collector stands far off because he knows he's unworthy. Where the Pharisee looks up at heaven, the tax collector hangs his head and beats his chest, mourning the weight of his sin. And where the Pharisee attacks the tax collector unprovoked, the tax collector overlooks the offense and leans into the grace of God. He recognizes the problem for what it really is. And the Pharisee is incapable of doing that. Knowing that he sinned more than he could possibly atone for on his own, he boldly asked the Father to pay the debt for him. He knows his only hope is the grace and mercy of good God. But the question becomes, how does he know that he's a good God? That's what all of us face. The Pharisee clearly doesn't believe God is good. He's got to prove himself. He doesn't think his dad loves him, is what it boils down to. And the tax collector does, but how is he assured of that? And this is where Jesus really points to himself in the story, because at that sacrificial service, like we talked about, the debt of the people is placed on another. And that Greek word for mercy that the, that the tax collector cries out, it really means atone for or propitiate. Uh, we, we just translate it into an easier word for us to grasp. But what he's asking for is not that God would lower the standard or just forget about his sin, but that God himself would pay the debt for him. Because on page one of the Bible, we learned that the payment of sin is debt. That's the just cause, or the, the just penalty. But God, being just, cannot let sin go without that debt being paid. He can't just say, oh yeah, that's fine, don't worry about it. But God, being a good God, being a gracious God, he makes a way so every day the people would go to the temple and have this sacrifice performed, have their sin debt be placed on that lamb, and it would be bound to an altar, a lamb without spot and, and without blemish, and it, prayer would be spoken over it that the Lord have mercy on his people and let somebody else pay the debt for him. And that is what this tax collector is resting in. It's what we have to rest in too because more than a little lamb could ever atone for the sins of that tax collector, much less all of the people of, of God. We have a true and better lamb in Jesus Christ. And that's how the Christian solves the problem of righteousness and approval. It's all grace. And I love the fact that he's a tax collector, right? He's like, he's, he's counting money for a living. He's probably pretty good at math, so he... He can figure out, I have sinned way more than one lamb's worth of sin. Right? So he has to hope in the one that's to come, the one that God has promised. And that's what we believe happened on the cross. It was this great exchange where Christ, who knew no sin, took on the title of greatest sinner for you and me and died so that the Father could proclaim over you, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. It's not that Christ just gave you a blank slate so you could prove yourself that you were worth dying for. No, he, he gave you his record. He didn't just pay your debt. He also gave you everything he owns. You went from in more debt than you could ever imagine, dead in your trespasses, to the heir of everything that God owns, which is everything. It's all of it. It's amazing. And I keep coming back to the benediction because I just love that line at the end. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, the smile of God. That is how the Christian solves the problem of righteousness. It's not your own work. It's all his grace. It's all his love for you. You aren't striving for approval of others to put God in your debt. Instead, you're free because the only opinion that matters you've already received in Jesus Christ. In him, the verdict is in. You have that external stamp of approval, righteous. And you don't need to earn it for yourself. But how the tax collector responds begs the question, do we respond that way? 
are we really a people of grace? And that's why we wanted to do this series. We wanted to know that we respond to God's grace in the right way, not like the Pharisee who thinks he has to now earn the grace, which is, it just doesn't make sense. You can't earn grace. The tax collector, he understood the purpose of the temple sacrifices was to point to Jesus, the one who would ultimately atone for all sin and brokenness in the world. He knew God's grace was the only way to get that stamp of approval. Nothing else would do. So even as he beats his chest and looks to the ground, he can approach the throne of grace boldly, and so can we. You can feel the weight of your sin and still know your value because he loved you enough to come die for you. We'll sing in a minute uh, a song that has the line, These two truths I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Those are words of grace, people. That is what we want our heart to be singing. You've been given such grace. We, we have to respond to it by being gracious too. So where we catch ourselves being ungracious this week, remember the Lord's graciousness to you. There's no way that we can't be a grateful and forgiving people without his grace. But once we've experienced it, there's no way we can't be. It's hard to be ungrateful when everything you've received is a gift from somebody else. It's hard to be unforgiving when you were forgiven of more sin than you could ever pay for on your own. So remember that his smile rests upon you, not because of your record, but because of another's record. And from that grace you've received, be free to go love others with a humble confidence that sets you totally apart from the self-righteous world around us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time this morning to just come to your word and dwell on what it means to be a people of grace, to know that as hopeless as our own works are to save us, you are faithful to give us one who does save us. Uh, Father, we thank you that the cross was not just you paying off a debt, but it was you giving us everything you own. It was giving us status as sons and daughters of the living God, not orphans. We don't have anything left to prove. Let us remember that. Oh, and Father, please just empower us to be a people of grace, people who are grateful for the work that you've done, people who are forgiving and live in a community where we can be gracious with one another. Father, we thank you for this story that personifies grace in the life of the tax collector, and let us remember that our rules aren't what get us there. It's all grace. And your smile is upon us because of another. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, so it's been said, if you believe the gospel in your heart, uh, notify your face. Uh, and typically that's said if somebody's walking around kind of, you know, harumphing. Uh, but if the words that you read on the screen are true, uh, if you're in Christ, uh, then you can live. I love the way Patrick put that. Uh, that's the metric. Cheer up is the beginning. Those are the first two words. Cheer up, right? You're far worse than you let on uh, to the world around you. Uh, but Jesus is far greater, greater than all your sin. And his grace is greater than all your sin. And he's extended it to us individually and uh, as a community of faith. So as you go, receive these words, grab hold of them, and remember that when he looks at you, when you live underneath his face, it is not a frown, it's a smile, right? So cheer up, right? Notify your face, and let's leave here acting as if these words are true, right? If your faith is in Jesus, receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you.
and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.